Welcome to episode 30 of Mike's Notes. Today, a few lessons from Anson Dorrance. Dorrance is the head coach of the University of North Carolina women's soccer team, and he's a really successful one at that. He's basically the best coach of any college sport in the United States. The list of awards that Dorans has could fill this entire podcast, so I'll only point out that he won 21 national championships in 29 years. He has a dynasty. And in episode 29, we looked at the start of that dynasty. We looked at how the UNC soccer program got started, and there were four points that we'll briefly touch on here just to catch you up. One, the program started by someone who wanted to scratch their own itch and scratching your own itch is solving your own problem and the reason that works so so well is because the person is invested and they have skin in the game and they really want it to happen. Two, it's easier now than ever to start anything. The UNC soccer program had to write letters to other schools and they had to look up addresses and directories and there weren't that many people around. They weren't connected like we are. So while starting anything is always hard, it's never been easier to start something. Three, when you're starting something, make it easy for someone to say yes. Laura Brockington, the woman who essentially started UNC women's soccer, had all of her ducks in a row when she... Um, presented the plan for a soccer team at UNC. And because she was so organized and because she had uh, so many facts and details about what the program should be and how it should be organized and what the laws around it were, it made it easy for the athletic director to say yes. And number four was surf well. That's the idea that if you are early to something and you can stay on the wave of that thing, you'll do well. UNC soccer succeeded because they were really early to the game compared to other women's soccer programs, but also because they surfed the wave well. That, that is that they had uh, decent enough facilities, they had a good enough coach, they had a good enough program for other kids to come into. So those were the four things that were interesting factors to the start of the UNC soccer program that any organization can apply and fit into what they want to become. This episode, though, we'll just look at Dorrance and how he coaches how he thinks, and what exactly um, his philosophy is, and why it has been so successful, why he's won 21 national championships in 29 years. Ready? One. Dorrance is relentless. He's a hustler. He loves the grind. When he uh, was a kid, he moved all over the world for his father who was in the oil industry. And one time at uh, boarding school, he was with a group of boys. It was an all-boy boarding school. Well, for the book, The Man Watching, Tim Crothers went back and talked to some of those people. And one friend recalled, quote, The rest of us just wanted to make good enough grades to stay in school, play sports, drink beer, and pick up women. But Anson's goals were greater. He was not just another guy in the dorm. He was very busy doing ants and things, end quote. So we see from an early age that Dorrance was a grinder. He was a hustler. He uh, talks about this in his coaching style when he says, quote, We judge our performance against the ideal game. We want perfect passing, 
perfect finishing, perfect organization overall. So we're not really playing against our opponents. We're playing against the game. It's impossible to beat the game, but we want to keep trying, end quote. So here Dorrance points out that you'll never win this competition. The competition that he frames for his kids, you'll never win that. What you want to try to do is to be the best against this perfect situation. Navy SEAL and podcaster Jocko Willink was once asked how he felt when he has to work out every morning, whether or not he thinks it's a Sisyphusian task. And if you're not aware, Sisyphus was a god that was sentenced to roll a boulder to the top of the hill. And when the boulder got to the top of the hill, uh, it, would, it would roll back down before his task was completed and he had to push it up against push it up again. So when someone says that it's a Sisyphusian task, that's what they mean is that it's over and over again without any results. And Willink was asked about his workouts, which he posts on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And he says that the point isn't to finish the workout. The point is to love the workout. It's to love the grind. It's that if you're Sisyphus, you love pushing a boulder uphill because of what it means to you. And so for Willink, that's the workout. And for Dorrance, it's uh, comparing against the perfect game. It's to try to beat that level. Another book about college sports is Billion Dollar Ball, which is a really interesting book about the finances and the structure and the creation of college football. But part of that book is about uh, the women's college rowing teams, which turn out to be almost the perfect offset for college football. And so in the book by Gilbert Gall, he talks about um, how college women's rowing has grown alongside of football because it's a good offset for um, for different schools. And so he, he recalls being in a, um, in a rowing shack with a team one time, and he asks what a step test is. And this is a, like an initiation slash workout for the rowers. And uh, this is what Gall writes when he asked what's a step test. Quote, Coach Cook explained that a step test was a drill to see how far and hard a rower could push herself before breaking. And each and every one of the 50-odd rowers in the room would break, she told me, because the machine is God. No one can beat the machine. The machine always wins. The step test is a test of failure, Brian's adds. Brian's is one of the athletes there. Everyone will fail. Some would fail sooner than others. They would anticipate the pain and quit as soon as it surfaced, afraid of what Brian calls the dark room. Others would hang on a little longer but then give up. Still others, like Anne, would push herself to the edge before letting go. Part of being an elite athlete is adapting to pain, Brian says. Once you have gone through it, you adapt to it the next time and the time after that so you know what to expect and you can push yourself to the next level. End quote. And that's from Billion Dollar Ball. And that's what Dorrance gets at for a lot of his strategies and a lot of the way he coaches people. Sometimes we get wrapped up in sports because there is a scoreboard and there is an end to the game. And we think that that's the end of maybe what we should judge something against. That's a false finish line. Dorrance eventually figured out that the there is no finish line really. It's all a journey and you have to love the journey. You have to love pushing the rock up the hill. You have to love lifting the weights. Dorrance um, got a nice dose of this early on when he was an insurance salesman. Before he was the coach of the uh, UNC soccer team, he had to sell insurance to make some money and feed his family. 
This is what he says about that. Quote, the wonderful lesson I learned as a young man is that success is all about grinding, 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 end quote. And in the book, uh, Crothers writes, quote, Dorrance works on most school holidays and despises nothing more than vacations, end quote. So we can see in these different vignettes of Dorrance's life that he is someone that loves the hustle, that loves the grind, that loves the act. It's not the finish line, it's the process. It's not the destination, it's the journey. And I think that's part of the reason that Dorrance has been so successful is because he hasn't finished on the goals. He hasn't finished on the ends, he's finished on the means. He hasn't focused on the product, he's focused on the process. This isn't easy to do though. A lot of what Dorrance focuses on is coaching up his kids, and we'll get to that in another point later on in this episode. But it's the choice that the kids have to make each day. Dorrance compares it to flipping a light switch, but it's a decision you have to make every day. If you're going to succeed at whatever it is, you have to do it every day. It has to be a regular thing. And to keep your motivation at that, you have to learn to love the journey. You have to learn to love the process. It's not the end because when you get to the end, the end is never really the thing that you necessarily think it will be. Casey Neistat recently released a vlog, and this is around August 10th or 11th, 2016, where he's talking about having 4 million subscribers to his YouTube channel. And he says, yeah, that's great that I have 4 million people, but this is just another step on the journey to other things he wants to do. The thing that you, that you may think you want at the end is not really the thing that's going to satisfy. It's not going to always motivate you. The thing that motivates you is flipping the light switch, and then you have to do that every day. Two. Dorrance is a good coach. His record is evidence of that. Uh, and one of the ways that he coaches well is that he gets his players to act in a way that they don't normally act. And one way he does this is uh, he tells his strikers, that is his forward players, that um, he learned in a book that it takes an average of seven attempts to score one goal. And so when Dorrance tells his players this, he's trying to get them into the mindset of increasing their shots on goal. And we can think of shots on goal as the denominator in a fraction of goals made over shots on goal. And so we can see that if Doran's figure holds, that for every seven attempts you take, you'll have uh, one goal. So one goal out of seven attempts, two goals out of 14 attempts, three goals out of 21 attempts, and so on and so on. And this idea to increase the denominator is something that can work a lot in life because significant parts of life have to do with luck. And when luck is involved, whether it's a 5% chance, a 20% chance, a 50% chance, there's one way that we can try to get luckier in life, and that's to increase our denominator, to increase the number of chances that we have. My favorite analogy of this is what Scott Adams writes about. Adams is the creator of Dilbert, Dilbert comic strip, and he wrote a wonderful book called How to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win Big, and this is what Adams writes. Quote, I find it helpful to see the world as a slot machine that doesn't ask you to put money in. All it asks is your time, focus, and energy to pull the handle over and over. A normal slot machine that requires money will bankrupt any player in the long run. But the machine that has rare yet certain payoffs and asks for no money up front is a guaranteed winner if you have what it takes to keep yanking until you get lucky. In that environment, 
You can fail 99% of the time while knowing success is guaranteed. All you need to do is to stay in the game long enough. End quote. Uh, fellow author Seth Godin has a very similar analogy, uh, and he says this, quote, The lottery tickets don't cost that much, but if you don't buy a lottery ticket, you can't win. End quote. So we can have success if we increase the denominator, if we uh, increase our number of chances that we get. We saw this in a previous episode about Neville Istel, the former CEO of Coca-Cola, who grew up in South Africa. Istel recalls going off to college, and part of his college initiation as part of the rugby team was that he had to steal a farm animal from somewhere and bring it back to campus. Well, Istel got the idea to steal a sheep from one of the local farms, and this was a step up. Normally, uh, rugby players had stolen uh, chickens or maybe piglets or something small, but the sheep was a step up. So Istel uh, goes ahead and he steals the sheep and he shows up on campus with it late at night and uh, he goes to bed and the next day he finds out that there's serious trouble in store for whoever took the sheep. They had either taken it from someone they shouldn't have or uh, something else had happened. He doesn't explain the details in his book, but he he writes that he thought he was in big trouble. He thought um, that, that this could be the end of his college career. And eventually it gets sorted out, but his, his, um, his instructions, his lesson for telling that story is that if that little break had gone against him, if he had been kicked out of school in South Africa, his entire life could have been different. He really needed that chance to go to school. He needed another chance uh, to be successful, to increase his, his odds of luck, to up his denominator. And he got that because he wasn't kicked out of school. In an episode from Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, he asks, how good are we at identifying really smart kids that are also really poor? And Gladwell concludes that we're not very good at finding those kids because we don't increase their denominator enough. They have a low percentage of being found by colleges, and we don't give them the chance to be found, whether it's through shuffling them through foster care, whether it's through different parental rights issues. Gladwell really dives into it, and he said this is crazy because he had a friend once who was drunk driving in his car with a bottle of liquor on the dashboard who got away without even getting a ticket or being arrested. And Gladwell implies that this was a very well-to-do male friend of his. And we can see in this that that guy has a, another chance of success. He doesn't have his uh, life ruined because he's arrested for drunk driving. He doesn't lose his job. Compare that to the kids that Gladwell looks at, and we can see that their odds are much lower, and they don't get to increase their denominator as much as uh, some of the other people that Gladwell is around. Crothers' book is full of quotes that Dorrance likes and that he tells to his players. And this one from Calvin Coolidge was one of my favorites of the book. Quote, Nothing in this world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are omnipotent, end quote. So Coolidge here is saying the same thing as Godin, as Scott Adams, as Dorrance prescribes to his players. 
you need to get a lot of attempts so that you can hit the jackpot. Three. And if you win the jackpot, you got lucky. Dorrance recognizes the role luck plays in his success. Quote, luck is such a factor and the absence of bad luck is such a factor, end quote, is what Dorrance says about the game. And Crothers uncovers this little ditty about how lucky Dorrance was. In 1976, Dorrance was hired because the university lacked the money for a moving expense and needed someone that lived nearby. So just because he was in Chapel Hill, in the city where the University of North Carolina is, he got hired as a soccer coach. And he was certainly qualified to a certain extent, but he was clearly not the best candidate. But he was hired because he got lucky. Luck plays a role in every situation. Any situation where you can't lose on purpose says Michael Mobison, is a situation with luck. If you can lose on purpose, then there's more skill involved. If you can try to lose on purpose but don't, there's a little more luck involved. And we can see this in different domains as well. Soccer is an example where there's a fair amount of skill but also some luck involved. Picking stocks, same, same thing, where there's some skill but also some luck involved. Picking an NCAA uh, basketball bracket has plenty of luck as far as my record is concerned. I never do well at those things, and it seems like it's bad luck. In fact, if it was all skill to pick winners, whether it was basketball or stocks or even recruiting players like Dorrance does, then you would think that someone had figured out a good system for it, but there's always luck involved. One of the darker chapters about the book is when Dorrance faced lawsuits from a former player about some of his behavior being inappropriate. And from the book, it sounds like Dorrance is pretty well cleared by it, um, that the charges levied against him were either overstated or not really appropriate to be, uh, to be said by the person who said them. But while those details are vague, we can see that there's luck involved with the players that he recruits. Dorrance is one of the best recruiters in the country. His skill level at recruiting the best players is very high, but there's also luck involved, or else he wouldn't have ended up with the types of players that led to this certain situation. The longer you go as a success, the less luck wins out. So my guess is that Dorrance isn't, um, isn't half lucky, half skilled. His skill probably exceeds his luck. And that's true for other people, whether they are writers like Stephen King, who obviously has a lot of skill, or whether they're investors. But we need to keep in mind that luck always plays a role. And if we forget about that, we develop too much hubris, which can often bring us down. Four. Anson Dorrance is an imitator. He's a copier. He's a cribber. One of my favorite stories of uh, Dorrance's imitation is when he went to observe a UNC men's basketball practice. Even though Dorrance and Dean Smith were both coaches at the same school, it wasn't like they hung out. In fact, it was on Dorrance's bucket list to uh, meet with Smith and play golf with him, which he eventually did. But to observe this practice early in his career, he had to go through the back channels to be let in because Smith led a closed practice. He didn't let anybody come in. So Dorrance is sitting there and he's watching how everything is scripted and he's watching how the players know where to go and the different drills they're doing. And he thinks to himself, I can soccerize the whole 
thing, he realizes that his practice structure was inefficient. It was not a good way to go about doing it. And he saw from Dean Smith, this person who had had a lot of success in a different sport, that that was a better way to do it. Later on in the book, Dorrance explains to Crothers, quote, every elite coach is part innovator, part imitator, end quote. It can be hard to keep in mind that copying and imitation and cribbing are fine ways to start. We all need to start. In fact, we all start by copying and imitating, whether we admit it or not. Stephen King explains to young writers that his style was really similar to whatever author he was reading at the time. If he read adventure books, his style was in the adventure tone. If he read thrillers, it was that style. If there was a plot device in a book he had just read, that device would often work its way into whatever he was writing, whether it was as a kid or in college. And so King notes that it's, it's fine to start by copying. Everyone copies to start. Jack Schwager says that he copied a lot of what uh, Warren Buffett and Benjamin Graham wrote and talked about when it came to value investing. Everybody copies as a way to start, and that's a fine thing to do, but you also have to pivot away from that. You also have to uh, develop your own sort of competitive advantage. Seth Klarman is a famous investor. He's a successful investor, and he said that he too copied the Benjamin Graham value approach, but eventually he found his own niche, that is, companies where a catalyst has happened. That is, a certain situation has happened that doesn't necessarily affect the company, but people are acting like it does, or people are told to act um, in a certain way. One example of this, says Klarman, is when a stock is removed from the S&P 500. So one day a stock is one of the 500 largest stocks in the United States, and one day it is number 501. And some funds, some retirement funds, some pensions are required to only hold stocks that are in the S&P 500. So managers of that portfolio have to divest themselves of that stock. And Klarman can pick it up while people are selling, even though the stock really hasn't changed that much. So that's a catalyst moment that Klarman looks for. And it's part of the value investing uh, um, landscape. It's part of a big picture, but it's only a certain niche of that picture. And that's what you have to do for soccer. Dorrance's style is a really aggressive style where he tries to recruit the best athletes and then he tries to get them the ball up the field and then he tries to have them win one-on-one battles. So even though he imitates the practice structure from Dean Smith and even though he takes certain drills from the German national team and even though he does all these other things that people Uh, that he's seen other people do. He applies them in his own way and he finds his own niche to succeed. So anyone can and almost everyone will start by copying other people. But to really succeed, you need to find a niche um, on your own. You need to develop develop your own strategy and your own theory and your own ideas about something. And then you need to dominate there and then that needs to become your competitive advantage, just like it has for the UNC women's soccer team. Five. Dorans is really good at focusing on the most important things. Every business, every organization, every person, every job has the most important things. It's the things that really need done. It's the things that bring the results. 
For Dorrance, as a soccer coach, it meant getting the best out of his players. Coaching, he found out, wasn't about being the best clinician or the right drills. Coaching is about uncapping the human potential, and he does that really well. A huge part of the book is about how he built relationships with women and how, as a man who grew up at a boys' school, um, he learned how to deal with these young women, that he learned how to get the best of them, that he learned how to have a successful relationship with them. And he found out that it's all about them maximizing their potential, and he needs to be the one that opens the door, or that shows them the door, or that creates the environment for, for, for doing that. In his book, uh, Pat Riley wrote that his, his job isn't to coach the players, his job is to create an environment where the players will be most successful. Another most important thing that Dorrance focuses on was the chaos that he lets reign around his program. There's not a lot of structure at the UNC program. It's not managed firmly top-down, but he creates situations where things are up in the air, where chaos ensues, and he wants his players to figure their way out of them. One example of this is a scrimmage drill he does, where he puts 10 minutes on the clock, and he uh, sets his starters up against his reserves, where the reserves are up by one goal. And so he forces them into this situation where they are stressed, so they feel what that stress is like. Just like when they feel the stress of a chaotic environment and they don't know what to do. If he can build that familiarity with discomfort in his players, then he knows that later on they'll be able to apply that in a game situation or in a life situation. Another example of this is early in his career, he would schedule very long road trips and he would schedule more road games than home games with the idea that his players would get used to playing somewhere else. They would get used to traveling. They would be used to not sleeping in their own bed and having the same comforts and knowing exactly where to go for the games. And that was the most important thing for him was to build up this skill of adaptation, to build up a resistance to chaos, to be comfortable in all of that. Even with the little things Dorrance does, he was really focused on most important things. When he got his first email account, there were 2,000 emails in it before he even checked it. He didn't turn in expense reports on time or sometimes at all, and he always focused on his players' development as people over their development as soccer players. So, Dorrance always had an idea of what the most important thing was, the thing that was going to carry the most freight, the thing that was going to carry the most weight. And once we start looking for most important things, we start to see them everywhere. Warren Buffett said the most important investing book for him was Ted Williams' book, The Science of Hitting, where Williams said the most important thing for hitting was to wait for the right pitch. And Buffett has adopted this, where he says the most important thing for investing is to wait for the right investment. We recently looked at what happened to the company Yahoo, and part of the reason that Yahoo failed is that they didn't focus on the most important thing. We think the most important thing uh, for a technology company is their people that are involved, the people who are going to generate the ideas, and people come from products, and Yahoo missed these two things. The most important thing is people and products, and Yahoo seemed to fail at both of those things. We also looked at this 
when we talked about the Skunk Works program at Lockheed Martin. And when the uh, Skunk Works team built the Stealth Bomber, they used pieces that were off the avionics Kmart shelf, they said. And they did this to save cost and avoid delays and try to get a functioning prototype available as soon as possible. So the most important things for Lockheed Martin and the Skunk Works division were cheap, reliable and repeatable aircraft. They needed things that they could get in the air quickly for not much money. And that were their most important things. At one point there was uh, an idea for the B-2 bomber that would increase the range another 80 miles. This is a plane that can fly 3,000 miles and they wanted to add 80 miles to the range. And so Kelly Johnson, the man that was in charge of that organization at the time, did the calculations and he figured out that those 80 extra miles would cost $20 million for all the changes that they had to make on the plane. So that uh, decision to change the plane to add that distance was scrapped. A certain distance for the plane was a most important thing, but a little extra distance was not. And it was the same for soccer. A little bit of stress and chaos for the players was a most important thing, but going beyond that really was not. Anson Dorrance uh, is an interesting coach. I don't follow soccer, but I really enjoyed the book that was written about him. And to quickly review, here's the things we touched on. One, the value of effort and being relentless and hustling and loving the grind and the process rather than focusing on the destination. Two, effort works in part because it increases our denominator. It gives us more cracks at it, more at-bats, more chances to pull the slot machine handle. And that's something that we need in any situation that has luck. Three, luck is everywhere, uh, everywhere around us. Any little bit of success or failure has some little bit of luck in it. Four, imitation is a place where everyone starts, but the sooner you start imitating, the sooner you need to also start thinking about what little niche you are going to dominate. And number five, focus on the most important thing. For Dorrance, the most important thing was conditioning his athletes to be comfortable in situations of chaos and developing as a human being over developing as a soccer player. If you can focus on your most important things too, you'll have success that rivals Anson Dorrance's. Thanks for listening to episode 30 of Mike's Notes. like a tree and get out of here it's leave you idiot make like a tree and leave you sound like a damn fool when you say it wrong all right then leave and take your book with you